you know, I was thinking this week when, when I saw some different things, I, I was thinking how cute toddlers are. Now, I can say that because I don't have any at home, but toddlers are cute, aren't they? And, and I think one of the things that, that is so cute about when children go through that transition from being uh, crawling babies to just learning how to walk and, and how to move through things, um, especially before they learn that, that their favorite word, you know, mine. <laughs> but, but I think one of the things that's so cute about toddlers is, is once they get up on their legs and they start to move around, they are so curious, aren't they? They're trying to explore everything in their world, and it's like they're trying to explore everything in their world at one time. And and it's so, I think one of the cutest things is when they first discover, it looks to us anyway, like they first discover that things look different when they're upside down. You ever watch them? I mean, they got these pudgy little legs and everything, and, and they got these seems like these big old Charlie Brown heads that don't really fit their bodies. And, and all of a sudden, you see them. They, they, start, they start turning and trying to look at everything upside down. And I think it's cutest when they, when they spread those chubby little legs and put that big old fat head through their legs. And they're, and they're trying to look at the whole world upside down. And then they, every once in a while, it's like they'll try. They'll get a little bit top-heavy, and they'll just tumble over. But they're so curious, they want to see what the world looks like upside down. I don't know, maybe they're just smarter than the rest of us. Maybe they realize that the world is upside down, and they just want to see what it should look like. You suppose? Sometimes it seems like the world is upside down, doesn't it? I know that none of you spent any time this week watching any of those hearings that were on (laughs) TV, TV this week. I, I really, I didn't have a whole lot of time to, to watch as they were going on, but, you know, you see the clips and you see all the news stuff and all the talking heads trying to argue their different points and all of those kinds of things. I, I'm probably thankful that I didn't watch, didn't have time to watch the whole thing. You know, I've got opinions on all that, and I'll do my best to bite my tongue and keep my opinions to myself because that's not what this is about. This is about exposing God's Word. Amen? But regardless of whatever your opinion is, regardless of whatever you think about all of those things that are going on, you can't look at those things and think that this world is normal, can you? You can't look at those things and not think that, man, this whole situation that we're in is upside down. But beyond the headlines, beyond the politics, beyond all of those things, you can't look at the problems in our communities and in our world and think that this world is normal, can you? You can't look at the drug problem in our area and think that things are normal. You can't look at all the children in our area that are being raised by their parents, I mean by their grandparents or by their great-grandparents and think that things are normal, can you? You can't look at all the kids in need of foster parents or in need of adoption and think that things in this world are normal. I mean, we got to face it, don't we? We live in an, <clears throat> in an upside-down world. But here's the thing. If you've grown up 
and the generation before you has grown up, and they have raised you in this this upside-down world, then you can't really help but think that this upside-down world is the way that things are supposed to be. You kind of get used to it. It's kind of like the uh, kind of like the tea bag that that gets in the water, and then all of a sudden everything is the same, and it just it just begins to feel like, well, I guess this is the way that it's supposed to be. You can get so used to an upside down world that it seems like it's right side up. Well, make no mistake about it, we're living in an upside down world, and if you're a believer here this morning. You have to resist everything to remember that we live in an upside-down world. You have to resist everything that tries to make this upside-down world feel normal to you. See, as believers, Jesus has called us to take this upside-down world and community and turn it right-side up. Not to get used to it being upside-down. He's called us to turn it the right way, the way that it's supposed to be. More specifically, he's called us here at Parkview Baptist Church to turn the upside-down world, to turn our upside-down community right-side up. Here's what happens. To a world that has gotten used to being upside-down, any attempts to turn it right-side up, isn't going to be received well, is it? That's what it felt like to the people of the city in our passage this morning. It felt like this brand new church that was being planted in their midst, it felt like they were turning their world upside down. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us, you know, or for those of you who have followed along with us through this journey, you know that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, those those four, have been in Philippi for a while. They've spent some time in Philippi. They they planted a church there in Philippi. They were they were there in Philippi long enough for a church to be planted. And as soon as that church was planted, as soon as they Paul and Silas got out of jail, it was time to move on to the next place. That's what God had called them to do. Now, judging, here's, here's a subtle thing in the text that you might not pick up just right as you're reading through it. But judging by the way that Luke uses his pronouns, sometimes he uses the pronoun we, sometimes he uses the pronoun they. And judging by the way that he uses his pronouns, and he switches to they in verse 1 of chapter 17, I think we get a pretty good indication that he stayed behind in Philippi. Now, you can make whatever you want of that. I think that what happened was that Paul left him in Philippi to pastor that brand new church there in Philippi. But y'all are smart people. You can, you can do with that what you will. But regardless, Luke did not join them as they left Philippi. Now, you've got a map inside your bulletin. You can follow along the geography of this if you'd like. The journey from Philippi to Thessalonica was about a hundred miles. When they left Philippi, they, they would have traveled that southwest journey. You could follow that arrow along. That southwest journey would have followed along something called the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. That Ignatian Way was a, a technological wonder of the day. It was a, an amazing feat of 
of technology from the Romans. It was really their version of a superhighway of that day. It was a 20-foot-wide paved road that was probably paved better than some of our roads around here. <laughs> it was a smooth road. It would have, it would have made for uh, safe travel. They kept, uh, they kept the, the, uh, the bandits away from that road, so it would have been a safe journey for them to travel, and that was the way that they traveled. But even though it would have been a smooth, safe way to travel, it still wasn't easy because if you remember, Paul and Silas had been beaten severely while they were in Philippi. So as they traveled, they were still feeling the effects of the beating that they took along the way. And most folks think it took them three days to, to make this trip. And if, it, if that was the case, they would have stopped the first night at this town called Amphipolis. And then the second night, they would have stopped at that town called Apollonia. You can see those dots on your map, and they're referred to there in verse 1. It's kind of interesting to me. Luke doesn't say that anything happened in those towns. I don't know why. But for some reason, instead of doing what Paul and Silas and Timothy usually did and just hang around in a town, for some reason they just passed through those towns. Whatever it was, the Holy Spirit sent them through those towns on the way to their destination, this bustling port city of Thessalonica. And when they got to Thessalonica, they, they did what they always tried to do. As soon as they got there, they found a Jewish synagogue. And they used that gathering of people who were used to looking at the Old Testament Scriptures. They used that gathering in a Jewish synagogue as their launching pad to preach Jesus from the Old Testament, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. That was their pattern, and that's what they did there. And the text says that, Paul preached there to them over three consecutive Sabbaths. So three consecutive Saturdays, he preached to this synagogue in Thessalonica. And there were some results. The text says that some folks believed, some Jews, some Gentiles. It was a mixed crowd. Some men and some women believed what he said about Jesus, believed in Jesus, trusted in Jesus. But as is the case, when you preach right-side-up truth to an upside-down world, upside-down people are going to get upset with you. That's what happened in our passage. Those people became very angry at the truth that was being preached to them. And when they became very angry, they came after Paul and Silas and Timothy. Now, the text doesn't tell us why, but by the, by the time that the people, this angry mob had formed, by the time that they came after Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were already out of town. Don't know why. The text doesn't tell us. Paul and Silas and Timothy were gone, but this new church that had formed was still there. So they went after a believer in that new church, a believer by the name of Jason. Now, why is Jason mentioned by name? These are questions that I ask myself as I study the text. And I think as we read through the text, we ought to get curious about things like that. Why is Jason mentioned by name? Well, some folks think that it was because he was an innkeeper and that that was where Paul and Silas and Timothy stayed. Was They stayed in his inn, and then in staying at his inn, 
he listened to the gospel or they witnessed to him and he became a believer. Well, that, that, okay, you can make a case for that, but here's what I think is more likely. I think it's more likely since Acts, since the book of Acts is a history of the formation of the church, universal and local churches specifically, I think that it was at Jason's house where the church in Thessalonica was formed. I think that that was the meeting place for this new church. Now, once again, that's what I think about it. Y'all are smart people. You can read it for yourself. You can decide what you think about that. But regardless, the accusation against Paul and Silas and Timothy was that they had turned the world upside down and now they were coming to their city, coming to the city of Thessalonica, threatening to do the same thing. Upside down people living in an upside down world thought that right-side-up believers were going to turn their world upside down, which is really right-side-up. Are you clear? (laughs) That sounds confusing, doesn't it? But I hope not, because that's the exact same thing that we're called to do as believers. Listen, folks. I mean, we we love our town. We, We love our communities, don't we? But you can't deny that Bluefield is upside down. Whether you're talking Bluefield, Virginia, or whether you're talking Bluefield, West Virginia, Bluefield is upside down. Tazewell County and Mercer County are upside down. Southwest Virginia, southern West Virginia are upside down. Our nation is upside down. Our world is upside down. Our Jerusalem Our Judea, our Samaria, and the ends of the earth are upside down. And Jesus has called us as believers. He's called us to turn them right side up. So that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? If that's what we're called to do, if that's the task that we're given, then how are we supposed to do it? Well, first, we're going to turn the world right side up by being fearless. Look back at verse 1, if you will. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. It's easy to pass over that, isn't it? We've been walking with Paul for a while. And as we've been walking with Paul through these different towns, we've seen a pattern, haven't we? You remember what happened to him in Cyprus? That was the very first place that they went. Remember what happened to him in Cyprus? He preached Jesus in the synagogues, and he was opposed. And then he moved on from Cyprus and went to a place called Antioch in Pisidia. Do you remember what happened in Antioch in Pisidia? Pisidian Antioch? He preached Jesus in the synagogue. And then he was run out of town on the threat of being stoned. And the people who threatened him with stoning followed him all the way to the next town, to Lystra. And when he got to Lystra and began to preach there, they dragged him, physically dragged, stoned him, dragged him out of town and left him for dead. What about Philippi? Now, Philippi didn't have a synagogue, did it? But they had a riverside prayer meeting. So he went to the Riverside prayer meeting. He went to that lady's Riverside prayer meeting. 
And when he got there, he preached Jesus to them. Remember what happened after he preached Jesus to them? He and Silas ended up singing at midnight in prison, didn't they? They, they, got, they were beaten. They were tortured. They were thrown in prison. That's happened enough times that it doesn't sound like a coincidence, does it? That's happened enough times that it sounds like a pattern, doesn't it? Okay, let's see here. Hmm. If I go into this next town and I walk into the synagogue and I start preaching, then odds are it's not going to end well. Odds are we're going to get resistance. Odds are there might be a few people who believe, but there's going to be a whole lot more people who come against me. And there's a really good chance that this is not going to be well received if I walk into this town, go into the synagogue, follow the same pattern, preach Jesus. Odds are we're going to get run out of town. See, the reality is people don't like to have their upside-down world turned right-side up, do they? Because in order to turn it right side up, what you have to do, you don't point to the world and tell them that the world is upside down. What we have to do is we have to tell them that they're upside down. We have to tell them that they're wrong. And no matter how lovingly, no matter how kindly you tell a person that they're wrong, they don't like it, do they? People won't receive that well. Nobody likes to be told that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. Nobody likes to be told that apart from Christ, they're, they're lost and on their way to an eternity in hell. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to, tell, not, nobody likes to be told how, that no matter how much therapy they get or how much counseling or how much mindfulness or meditation or yoga or medication or exercise or or good works. Nobody likes to be told that no matter how much of that you get, you can't fix yourself. Nobody likes to hear that. And most of the time, they're not going to react well. Now, they probably won't beat you up or throw you in prison yet, but they might quit being your friend. They might quit being your boyfriend or your girlfriend. They might yell at you. They might tell you they hate you, that's why no matter what the pattern is, that's why you got to be fearless. See, Paul was fearless when he kept walking into the synagogues preaching Jesus, knowing what the outcome was going to be. He was fearless. And if you and I are going to turn this community, going to turn this area, going to turn this nation, going to turn this world right side up, then we have to be fearless. If you're going to turn your friends right side up, if you're going to turn your family right side up, you need to be fearless. Fearlessly walk into difficult situations. Fearlessly engage in difficult conversations. Fearlessly speak of sin. Fearlessly point people to their Savior. We're only going to turn this world right side up by being fearless. But once we're fearless, we also need to be faithful. Look at verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in as was his custom And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, 
is the Christ. Notice what Paul did when he went into the synagogue. Actually, notice what he didn't do. He didn't go into the synagogue trying to fit in, did he? He he didn't go into the synagogue and, and try to entertain them into liking him. He didn't go into the synagogue saying things to try to manipulate them to get him on to get them on his side, did he? Now what did he do when he went in there? When he walked into the synagogue, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He didn't walk in and immediately tell them they were all going to hell and start beating them over the head with a Schofield reference Bible. (laughs) He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained the Scriptures to them. The the word that's translated explained there, it's, it's it's a fascinating word. It literally carries the idea of opening something up. In other words, what Paul was doing was was he was opening up the Scriptures to them. That doesn't just mean that he was opening up the scroll and reading it to them. No, it means that he was unfolding the truth of Scripture. He was exposing, you know, we talk all the time about expository preaching here. That's what the word comes from, is exposing people to Scripture, exposing the text of Scripture to people. And that's what he was doing. He was reasoning with them from the Scriptures. He exposed the truth of the Bible to them. And when he exposed the truth of the Bible to them, he was logically proving the good news that Jesus is who he said he is. And that Jesus did what he said he did. He he didn't manipulate them with emotions. He, He didn't manipulate them with Entertainment. He didn't tell a bunch of tear-jerking stories. He didn't tug on their heartstrings. He didn't manipulate them in any way. He simply opened the Scripture and explained the gospel to them. Do you know your Bible well enough to open it up to people? You know, we just had a Q&A here on Thursday. For our TNT, and one of the reasons that I like to do the Q and A is because that that people have real, genuine questions. Do, do you know your Bible well enough to be able to show them Jesus in the Scriptures? The reason that we sit here every Sunday under the systematic expositional preaching of the Scripture, <laughs> Jacob said that we've been in Acts for over a year, and we'll be in Acts, you know, some people think, until Jesus comes back. I don't know how long we're going to be in the book of Acts, but the reason that we sit under the systematic exposition of Scripture, in other words, exposing verse by verse by verse what this book of the Bible says, and then we'll go on to the next book of the Bible. The reason that we do that, the reason that we come back here every Sunday evening, evening and dive back into the text and ask questions about the text, the reason that we have things like Q&A where we can ask questions of the text, the reason that we do that is not to create a bunch of Bible answer people. The reason that we do that is so that each of you will be able and equipped to handle Scripture well. This morning I had a few minutes 
and I just flipped through the Sunday morning preaching shows. And I quickly turned it off because I got almost as angry as I did watching the news coverage from the politics stuff. There is so much trash being peddled as preaching. We have to know what this says. And if we're going to turn this world right side up, we have to be able, each of us, not just me, each of us have to be able to communicate what this really says to people. Otherwise, they're just going to stay as upside down as they are now. Every believer must be able to open the Bible and point people to Jesus. I thought all I needed to do was tell people my story. I thought all all I needed to do was tell people what Jesus did for me and tell him my testimony. Don't get me wrong, that's, that's a good start. It's always a good start. But that's not where you finish. That opens the door so that you can point people to Jesus in the text, so that you can lead people to Jesus through his word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God, this, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what this is. See, this, God's Word, is the only tool that we have that's sharp enough to cut through things that are impenetrable. It's the only thing that we have that will cut through a hardened heart of stone. Not our winsomeness, not our storytelling, not our own story. The only thing that will cut through a heart of stone is this Word. It's the only thing that will give new life to somebody who is dead in their trespasses and sins. It's the only thing that will turn an upside-down world right side up. Are you faithful to open your Bible? Are you faithful to share what the Bible says with other people? Are you faithful to use your Bible to share Jesus with other people? If we're going to turn our world right side up, we'll do it by being fearless and by being faithful. And if we're fearless and if we're faithful, then we're also going to be fruitful. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. See, everywhere that Paul went, he opened up his scriptures, he shared the gospel, and everywhere that he went, people were saved and people were baptized. Listen, folks, it's been a long time since we've seen somebody saved and baptized here. And it kills me. I can't tell you how discouraging that is to me when this tank stays dry. And it ought to be discouraging to you too. 
I mean, God's doing a lot of wonderful things here. But for some reason, we're not seeing people get saved. Are you fearlessly sharing Jesus with people on a regular basis, no matter what the consequences might be? See, instead of just being discouraged about the tank being dry, instead of just being discouraged about people not coming to Christ, about people not getting saved, instead of just being discouraged about that and sitting around saying, oh, woe is me. No, it should turn around as a mirror so that we can look in it and say, am I sharing the gospel with people? Am I doing what Jesus has called me to do? You know, I was talking with a church not too long ago about the decline that they've been in for a long period of time. And one of the first questions before we even really got to assessing the health of the church, before we even got to that, they were asking questions about, hey, what, what can we do to, what, what can we do to attract people? What can we do to get people to come to church? What can we do to start growing here? Give me some things. Give me some things to do. And as they were beginning to do that, one of the things that kept coming up in their discussion was, what can we put on the marquee? that will make people want to come to our church. I said, it doesn't matter what you put on your marquee. doesn't matter. doesn't matter what sign you put up front. doesn't matter if you put a big billboard up in the front. It doesn't matter what you put on your sign if you're ignoring the communities and if you're ignoring the opportunities that Jesus gives us to share the gospel with people on a daily basis. And they were asking about examples of that. And I said, well, just right up the road, not within a stone's throw distance, you have a school. When was the last time that you went into that school? And one of them shook her head, got all this, you know, indignant look. Well, the government won't let churches go into schools. I told her to quit being intimidated by what she sees on the news and start walking in and doing something. See, we are far more afraid than we need to be. We are far more intimidated than we need to be. Amen? Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that was immediately after he gave us the Great Commission telling us that we're supposed to make disciples. Jesus also said that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. So here's the reality. We need to quit being afraid, don't we? We need to quit being timid. We need to quit acting like we've got something to hide from people. (laughs) Listen, we have the greatest treasure in the universe, in these jars of clay. We're just asked to share that treasure, aren't we? Be bold in sharing that treasure. Don't just be bold in sharing that treasure, but be faithful with the gospel that you do share. Share what the Bible says. Don't make up stuff. Don't tell people that Jesus is here to give them their best life now. 
Don't make up stuff. Share Scripture with people. Share what the Bible says about Jesus. Open the Bible with people. And share Jesus. So it's conviction time. Are you doing that with people? Okay, it's reflection time. Am I doing that with people? Really, we don't need to ask that question, do we? Because we see the answer. We know the answer. If we were, me included, if we were faithfully sharing the gospel every opportunity that the Lord gives us, then that tank wouldn't be dry. Amen? You know, I regularly pray that we'd see these baptistry waters used every week. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But here's what I do know. What I do know is that if each of us are being fearless, and if each of us are being faithful, then we will see fruit. We will see people saved. Some will be persuaded, and we'll see upside-down lives being turned right-side up. And when that happens, when we're fearlessly sharing Jesus with people, when we're faithfully opening the truth of Scripture to them, when we're experiencing the fruit of salvations and baptisms, when those things happen, it's all going to be rosy. That's not what Scripture says, is it? When those things happen, we will face opposition. Look at verses 5 through 9. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, what a description that is, huh? They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard about these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. We've already established that we live in a world that is upside down in its sin and confusion. You think about it, from the time... that that children are old enough to be plopped in front of a TV screen. They're told that the absolute center of the universe and everything else revolves around their feelings and their desires. And this isn't just some new thing. We can't just look and say, well, you know, it's those millennials because those millennials were raised by us Gen Xers and us Gen Xers were raised by you baby boomers and you baby boomers were raised by your traditionalists. So it's it, this is what we have built. We have built a generation, at least one generation, probably two generations of people who think that the world revolves around their feelings and around their emotions. Schools and colleges and workplace training and TV commercials and opinion polls and self-help books and even churches have taught generations of people that their personal freedom and autonomy is paramount. In other words, 
We live in a world that says, it's all about me. You can do anything that you want to do. You can be anything that you want to be. For a generation, at least, probably two generations, we've been told that the only limiting factor to morality is consent. And consent is based on whether I feel like it or not. That's the new norm. That's where we are. That's where this community, that's where this world is. That's normal. It's upside down. This world is upside down and people are so used to it, they think that that's the way that it's supposed to be. So when a Bible-believing, Bible-proclaiming Christian speaks truth into a world like that, we're weird. Some of us are weird by birth. But as believers, we're weird by what we proclaim. But even more than being weird, we are dangerous. We're countercultural. We're subversive. We're homophobic. We're bigots. We're sexists. We're patriarchal. We're oppressive. We're seen as trying to turn the world upside down. We shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you who follow me. See, believers have lived comfortably in our country for a long time. And and I think that that comfort, I don't think, I know, that that comfort has led to complacency. And that complacency has led to silence. And as that silence has echoed through this world... It's slowly turned upside down, and we haven't said a word. We have failed to fearlessly share Jesus with people. We have failed to faithfully open the truth of Scripture to people. And we've seen the fruit that's come from that, haven't we? So now when we do wake up from our complacency and we begin to share the truth of Scripture and we begin to live like Jesus in a culture like that, the world thinks we're turning them upside down and they're not going to like it. We're going to face opposition. That shouldn't surprise us because Jesus did. Paul did. Jason did. The church at Thessalonica did, and so will we, and so will you. (laughs) Jesus said, I'll never leave you, didn't he? He said, I'll never forsake you. And any opposition that you face, as Paul described it later on, any opposition that you face will be just a light, momentary affliction when compared with the eternal weight of glory. Amen? So what do you need to do? You need to start fearlessly sharing Jesus with the people that you work with. 
you need to start fearlessly sharing Jesus with the people that you go to school with. You need to start fearlessly sharing Jesus with the people that you share a home with. Start faithfully opening up your Bible with people. Like I said, you don't have to be a Bible answer man or a Bible answer woman. Just open up the Bible and read it with somebody. Where's the power? It's sharp and active and living. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Not your smarts. (laughs) It's about the Word. Just open it up. Read it with them. Study it with them. Share it with them. You know, I have never, and I've not done this as much as I should, and I've been convicted of that this past week, and I'm going to start doing it again by God's grace. But I have never had anybody that I have asked to sit down and read Scripture with me. I have never had anybody say no. I've had more people say no to me asking if I could pray for them than if I ask them if they'll read Scripture with me. And if they say no, okay. But if they say yes, read the Bible with them. Study with them. Share with them. And then evaluate your fearlessness and faithfulness by the fruit that you're seeing. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, you know, I haven't done all that stuff, but I'm doing all right. Well, tell me the fruit in your life. Tell me the last time that you led somebody to Jesus. And as you evaluate that fruit, just start asking the Lord for more. Just start begging Him for more. Be prepared for the opposition you're going to face. And when you do face that opposition, oh, count yourself blessed. Count yourself blessed for being counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Are you ready to be known as those crazy people who are turning Bluefield upside down? Why? I am. I'm ready to hear that about Parkview. I hear a lot of good things about Parkview and the community. How we love the community, how we serve the community, how we do those things. I've not yet heard those crazy people at Parkview are turning Bluefield upside down. But I long for that. So let's get started, shall we? Let's get started. Let's pray. Father, first I want to ask that you would forgive us of our complacency. Both pastor and people. Father, would you forgive us for enjoying the comfort of our salvation rather than loving those around us enough to do everything that we can to keep them from suffering an eternity in hell. Oh God, my prayer is simple this morning. Father, would you make us people who would turn our community, our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, 
and the ends of the earth upside down. Father, your word has told us what we need to do. May this morning be a time of commitment to do that. Now, Father, in the opening of your word this morning, if there's one here that your spirit has convicted and shown that they've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, Lord, I'd ask that today would be the day of their salvation. Father, however your spirit moves in this place. Father, I'd ask that we would respond well. In Jesus' name, amen.